Hey, this is a Hakawari production. My guest today is an award-winning author and activist. She's currently executive director of the Representation Project, an American organization that challenges gender stereotypes and social injustice. Her last best-selling book, Rage Becomes Her, The Power of Women's Anger, has been translated into a bunch of languages. She's a remarkable public speaker, and I'm so happy to have her here. Joining us from Washington, D.C., please welcome Soraya Shamali. Soraya, welcome to the men's room. Thank you very much for having me. I'm excited to have this conversation with you today. So I think we have to start with this little news tidbit. Um, just recently, the mayor of Paris was fined 90,000 euros for appointing too many women to senior positions in the government there. 69% of those senior positions were given to women in 2018, but they have a law that you can only have a majority of 60% of either gender. So I know this irritated you because I saw you tweeted about it. But don't you think it's a kind of a fair call that if you make a rule like that and you want everyone to be equal, <laughs> shouldn't it apply equally to everyone? I actually started the answer to that <laughs> with a chuckle um, because I think laws like this are important, rules like this are important. But the danger in them is that they create false equivalences. They erase power. They flatten um, what is, I think, very important context and information. So yes, the rule is important, but understanding the rule and its defects are just as important, if not more. In a situation like this, the rule was actually created to try and accomplish a specific aim, which was to have equity and um, women's representation in governance and leadership. And so asserting that the rule is hurting men, which is essentially what this fine does, right, doesn't actually ac accomplish that goal. And it does the particularly harmful job, I think, of pretending that men and women have equal status in society, in governance, in leadership, in influence, in culture. And so what we want to be able to do is have really difficult and nuanced conversations about why rules are important, what their defects are, and how we improve outcomes. But aren't these kinds of rules what feminist organizations fight for? It's basically affirmative action in uh, systems and organizations and governments that ensure that, you know, uh, th that they're forced to give minorities and women, uh, uh, you know, equal representation. So do you think that we shouldn't have these rules? I mean, once you put the rule in it in place, then you kind of have to play by the rules. Well, first of all, I would say that there's no one feminism, right? There are multitudes of feminism. It's like saying there's one type of democracy, right? And so we need to know that there are feminists who pursue legal frameworks, because we live in the societies we live in that are informed by enlightenment principles and, you know, everything that we know eventually got us to this point. And there are other feminists who walk away from that. And their point is we shouldn't have to be forced to live and operate within patriarchal norms, laws and rules that were never, ever, ever built to serve us and will, in fact, never serve us. And I think this is a good example of the way the law, which, by the way, is not just necessarily, the law is not inherently just, 
might in fact backfire in the traditions of um, liberal enlightenment thinking. That actually is a great lead into my next question, because you're talking about radical feminism, right? That's what it's kind of the label that it has, which kind of has a connotation that uh, some people don't like, including Gad Saad, which who I had on the, the show a few weeks ago. He's a marketing professor at Concordia University, and he has this new book called The Parasitic Mind. I don't know if you've read it or heard about it. Um, I have not. So basically, in this book, one of the things that he challenges is exactly what you just talked about, this idea of radical feminism, where instead of just stopping at saying, okay, uh, so he gives us an intro as an example that in universities in the U.S., um, women are actually the majority in many of the universities, and yet they still continue to walk around acting like it's governed by the Taliban. That was his words. And they're still complaining. And so he's basically saying, once you've achieved representation, <laughs> why are you still complaining? Can't you just like carry on and move on? So what do you say to this? So I would not categorize what I said as falling into the um, definition of radical feminism. That would be thing one. I think radical, radical feminism with a big R, big F is a specific thing that he's not talking about. He's talking about feminism, it seems to me, that is constantly pushing for change, constantly dynamic, and is never satisfied, which is his problem. Aren't you ever satisfied? Can't you be happy with what we have given you? Right? Isn't it enough that you have representation? When anyone, and I think his big argument, actually, now that you're saying this, is on the basis of common sense, right? He's like, this is just overturning all common sense. The most parasitic system that I can imagine is patriarchal. It feeds off of the labor of people and within colonial, imperialist, anti-democratic structures, poor people, people of color, globally, etc., So I think if we want to go back to the notion of common sense, if we want to go back to the notion of what is right or just in the world, which I'm not sure how he deals with that, representation is really the leading edge. It's fundamentally the most superficial aspect of what has to be accomplished. Well, he bases all his opinions on data. So to him, the data shows that women have a majority in universities. So thus, in the educational system in the United States, the data shows that women are not being left behind. But let me ask you again about this idea of... No, no, no. Let me, okay, let me go, go ahead. Back to sure, idea. of course. <laughs> of course. Let's talk about the data, okay? So, and and I can't actually just think about the United States My feminism is uh, transnational, transversal. So when I think of the United States, it's squarely in my mind in the context of the way patriarchal systems function globally. Okay, so let's let's just put that out there because that's the context for my thinking. Secondly, let's talk about data. In all countries, men overwhelmingly dominate every system of power, every institution of governance every religious authority. Okay, so the first data we've got to start with is that fact. If women currently in the United States make a majority of students in college, we should break that down. The first thing is the way that men and women operate in the U.S. school system remains gender segregationalist. Mainly majors, by the time people get to college, are very traditionally gendered. 
women clustering in certain fields, men clustering in other fields. That is a very deeply patriarchal approach to the way we assign labor, roles, responsibilities in society, and it has a long tail because it ends up being the basis for wage gaps, wealth gaps, health gaps, power gaps, everything else you can imagine. So I would question the the idea that the data that you've just pointed to, which is that women dominate in college, um, is being analyzed in depth at all from that perspective. Secondly, the fact that women dominate in college and are making inroads into certain traditionally male-dominated fields doesn't actually necessarily mean they have power and authority to shape and change culture or to make laws, right? So 80 to 85 percent of legislative roles are still filled by male, overwhelmingly white in the United States. So I don't really understand why that would be the basis for an argument that we should be satisfied with what we have. Okay, fair points. For sure, um, I wish I wish I had you both in here at the same time because I feel like you would have answered his points in a, a much more informed way. So, but you just said something about legislation. So, obviously, here in the Middle East, um, we're even way behind what you have in the West and in places like France, what, what we were talking about earlier. But um, women are making their way into more powerful positions, especially with uh, Joe Biden. He's already appointed several women to his cabinet, and of course, you have Kamala Harris uh, as vice president. And then he intends to name uh, Gina McCarthy, a former EPA chief, as his senior advisor on climate change, which is pretty mm-hmm. big for the next administration. And Jennifer Granholm, a former Michigan governor, to lead the Department of Energy, which is also a big department. So as far as government goes in the U.S., women are getting better representation, it seems. So do you feel like this is a an achievement for women who have been kind of striving for this? First of all, are you, you know, counting this as like a yes, you know, like, and and second, what's the situation in the corporate world? Because I know you've worked in the corporate world. So I think that we live in a very long process of two steps forward, one step back, right? So we're going from the Trump administration, arguably, and actually demonstrably, if you want to go down the path of fact-checking, Um, among the whitest, malest administrations in 40 years. That was true from the day he stepped into office. He essentially filled his cabinet and administration um, with people that looked like him, which represented a huge um, step back for inclusion and diversity um, in governance in the United States. And so what Joe Biden is doing is a corrective measure to that, And um, yes, of course, I'm happy that that's the case, because I think in order for a society to thrive and be healthy and for the people who are our leaders to make informed decisions that, you know, accurately assess risk and have the proper function of democracy in mind, we need women and people of color and um, a wide assortment of leaders. So yes, check. I agree. That's wonderful. And that's great. As far as the corporate world is concerned, we've sort of been at a standstill for a very long time in the United States. And so we know that in um, in terms of, for example, CEOs or boards or advisory committees, uh, it's been fairly static. And actually, the past several years, the percentage of women and um, black men and people of color has been... Um, 
not increasing and, in fact, in some cases going backwards. Um, so we'll have to sort of wait and see what that looks like. Yeah, the figure I saw actually today is that as of 2018, only 5% of Fortune 500 CEOs were women. So that's really and pathetic. I think they're all white. Yeah, for sure. Um, but I, I will add one other thing to this question, if it's meaningful. I don't know if you're going to get to this, but it's very clear from historical record and analysis and from the very evident impacts of this pandemic that COVID um, has so radically disproportionately affected women, um, over a million of whom have had to leave the workplace in the United States. That's more than four times the number of men. Um, and that that's going to affect women's economic lives, professional lives, tenure, and leadership for years to come. You're absolutely right. That's a good point. And, and I'll say, I don't, you know, I think that you now have in my head this idea of a parasite. And there, I want to go back to this because it's so important to women's leadership and economic lives and equality. We know around the world that women do the vast majority of unpaid care work, domestic work, elder care, right? And we know that, for example, in the United States, women do two hours more before the pandemic, as do girls in childhood with childhood chores, two hours more of unpaid work on average than their male counterparts. With the pandemic, that, has, that gap has grown and um, the overall unpaid labor has exponentially grown. And all of that falls on the shoulders of women. So before the pandemic, the society, the economic system that we had relied on this provision, women's provision of labor, right? Women's provision of unpaid work. And um, the pandemic is just shining a light on how critical that work is and how undervalued it is in society. Because it's women service workers, women teachers, women healthcare workers. You know, women make up almost 70, 75% of healthcare workers. So they're on the front line of COVID. They're the service workers. They're in the industries that are most hard hit by um, the economic impacts of COVID. All of this accrues to create greater and greater imbalances. And I think a lot of, uh, this is my personal opinion, I think a lot of men uh, in, you know, households uh, think that, well, you know, if I'm going to be working hard and I'm making more money and, you know, my wife is at home, you know, dur especially during COVID, you know, she why not? She should be more responsible for the housework because I'm at work. But what they don't understand is that having to do this housework precludes them from going out and doing better in their career. So it's like a, a vicious circle. Well, and unfortunately, because we already have existing wage and wealth gaps that are gendered, that are racialized, all of which are contributed to by this expectation that women care and care and care at great cost to themselves, but no cost to society, right? That, that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, because at a time of crisis like this, of course the person who has the greatest potential to make the most money is going to have to do that. And so it ends up being a self-perpetuating system, which is, of course, that speaks deeply to the, to the flexibility, elasticity, adaptability of patriarchy, right? 
Yeah, but I mean, the solution isn't clear. And and to get to that, actually, to talk about, also, we were talking about um, how women cluster in certain uh, programs yes. in university. So I read a really interesting article, I think just yesterday, on uh, Al Arabiya English, which is a Middle Eastern uh, news mm-hmm. uh, outlet, uh, by a researcher called Omar Al-Ubaidli. And it's actually his column. He suggests that the Middle East needs more private organizations that get endowments to do research and studies on women's issues, which would help resolve the problem at the root of why women are not being represented um, in in government and in corporations, instead of putting these laws of affirmative action, that's really like a band-aid on the problem. So just Mm -hmm. to give you a few figures of here, what it looks like, uh, women account for less than 10% of parliamentary seats in several, in most Gulf states. Um, Kuwait's 2020 elections resulted in all 50 seats going to men. And the private sector is even worse. Only three out of the 83 Gulf firms listed in the Forbes top 100 Arab family businesses had a female chairperson. So it's like pretty sad, even though you hear about... I mean, we see a lot of women who are leaders in their communities. You know, we see that, but then... Let's talk about data. The data doesn't show that that this translates to actually being like in in positions of leadership or power. So, right, is that the, the the solution then? Is to have these groups? Like, I know that you sit on the boards of a bunch of uh, of organizations. There's a long list on your website, but there's Women Action and the Media, Women's Media Center, Coalition for Women in Journalism, and the list goes on. What are these groups doing? And is this how we can help um, kind of fix the problem? So I think literally everything has to happen at the same time, right? There's no solution that people are pursuing that I would say, don't pursue that, pursue this. Because I think there is a legitimate place for everything you just discussed. I think we need the research. I I think we need the advocacy. I think we need the academic work. Um, so I, I want to be very specific, though, about something that you asked. The movements of women that you just, for example, listed in the organizations that I'm associated with, they are dedicated to shedding light on the problem, to suggesting solutions, to encouraging men to act as allies and accomplices. Those are two different things, right? An ally, I think, would say, of course, I believe in women's equality. An accomplice says, I believe in women's equality and I'm going to do something about it. So, for example, if I am the head of an editorial newsroom, I'm going to make sure that not only do we have um, men and women journalists covering every type of news, but we have men and women sources. We have men and women in our photographs. We, you know, we we understand that it's a pervasive problem that needs a pervasive solution. An accomplice actually acts on behalf um, of the movement, as opposed to just saying yes. I agree with you. Um, the second thing is, I think a lot of efforts are geared towards um, helping women change their behavior and become better at advocating for themselves, negotiating for higher pay, running for office. And all of that is well and good because it's, you know, we, we want women to have the skills to succeed in what has really been a man's, 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 man's world. But in fact, there's a lot of um, neoliberal self-empowerment mumbo-jumbo that goes into that. And empowerment is different from power. What we want is for women to have enough power 
to shape the course of culture, politics, society, and history. And paying them lip service um, or, you know, saying, well, you have representation, now shut up, doesn't do that, right? So that, I mean, I would say that's an act in bad faith. Yeah. Um, And what we want are acts in good faith, (laughs) you know? And then thirdly, I will say this, because we haven't talked about this, I personally believe that the only way we're going to accomplish significant change anywhere in the world is through early childhood education and early childhood education that disrupts longstanding patterns of rigid binary definitions of gender, because that carves the world up into theoretically equal halves that are never equal, right? Any binary has a dominant aspect to it and a subservient aspect to it. And it's not just that gender is a matter of the way we behave as individuals. It is the way we structure our ideas. It is the way we structure our work. It is the way we think about our interrelationships and identities. And so we need to think carefully about what it means to cultivate empathy and respect for others and good citizenship, but in the youngest of us. Can you explain what you mean? I'm kind of confused. Are are you saying that we should stop calling kids like boys and girls and separating them, for example, into separate groups? Like specifically, what kind of intervention or change are you suggesting? Well, I'm suggesting that we we don't, for example, construct masculinity as the rejection of femininity, the denigration of femininity. We need to be able to grow boys into adulthood in a way that doesn't necessarily implicate the subservience of women and of feminine and femininity and feminine ideas and femininity, which is what generally speaking universally is the case, right? I mean, no little boy goes through childhood and adolescence without understanding that to be like girls is a denigration of his manhood. Yeah. Right? And so we need to detach adult manhood from an intrinsic idea that adult manhood can only be achieved by rejecting femininity, girls, feminine aspects of the self, right? And because that what that leads to for boys and men is that as children, they learn to associate... Um, feelings like sadness or fear or empathy or even kindness and compassion with weakness, with vulnerability, with being girl-like. And that's unhealthy for them. It's unhealthy for the women in their lives. And it's super unhealthy for society, right? So we have to re-envision the way we think about masculinity, right? The way we think about femininity. Um, And I, I talk about that in my book, um, because I'm, I, I use anger as a as a way to discuss those ideas. Yeah, and I want to talk about your book too. But I feel like what you're talking about is so ingrained in 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 society that it's not something where you could just say, well, let's switch up the program a little bit, the curriculum, because you know kids are are learning this at home. They're learning it from other kids and their cousins, and it's like. It seems like such a huge undertaking, but I see what you're saying. And I I feel like 
especially in the West, because I live here. So maybe from where you're sitting, you still see a lot of that. But if you compare the States, for example, with the Middle East, the stories I hear are coming from early childhood and from schools. It's much, much worse. I mean, little boys not only have the issues that you talk about, but they still expect that women, you know, should do take on domestic tasks and they talk about girls in a certain way. Um, so we have such a long way to go. It's it's crazy. So just just before we get to your book, if there was like one organization that formed right now in the Middle East um, that's similar to kind of the groups that you belong to based on the experience you have, the ones that you feel are the most effective, what's the first group that you would think like this is what you guys need to do <laughs> oh my gosh am i making this group up yeah honestly it would be a group that would be focused on masculinity i wouldn't even focus it on girls and women at all i'd focus it on um I'd focus it on masculinity. Like, how do we have healthy, productive masculinity that lifts women up, not as special and in need of protection, but as people who are deserving of dignity, rights, power, authority, equality? That's so interesting. So what would you call the group? You're our, you're like our <laughs> feminist consultant. <laughs> um, um, what would I call the group? Um the male accomplices network man okay that's so interesting because i feel like that's kind of <laughs> but i've heard people say that you can't fix uh you can't achieve equality for women until you fix maleism right well i mean how we we've literally had decades of feminist activism, centuries of feminist activism, homegrown around the world, right? Literally, I don't think there's any nation state, pre-nation state place where this, you know, where there haven't been women who are smart and charismatic and able and act as leaders in their communities, right? And so we we don't need women to have more confidence. Women have confidence. We don't need women to learn to talk more like men because that's just not particularly useful to anybody. And what we need is for cultures and societies to value women and girls, to, to value them not as prizes, not as princesses, not as creatures that serve a sexual purpose, but as human beings, literally full human beings. And until we get to the point where we're not socializing boys and men to see girls and women as functional aids or prosthetics or handmaidens or a support system for their emotional, domestic and social lives, we won't get there. Yeah, definitely. But again, you know, when you think about the legal systems here in the Middle East, it, it just makes you think like what a long road it is. I, they've made some strides, you know, as you know, in Saudi Arabia, um, they, they're opening up. Women no longer are obliged, to, you know, to wear the, the full abaya. Um, they're now allowed to apply for their own passports without a, without right. a, a male family member. And then in the UAE, they've also, you know, uh, updated their laws which is great. We want to celebrate that. So for instance, now honor killings, people, family members who kill a woman in their family as an honor killing will now be treated as a regular murder, 
which is like, right. well, it's about time. It is a murder. But, you know, so we're, we're really far behind. And But I think, I think, as you said, everything has to happen at the same time. And, you know, though there are baby steps legally that are taking place, which should be leaps and bounds, we wish they were leaps and bounds, but we, but right. we have to be talking about all the stuff that we're talking about. So you wrote a book which was very successful, called Rage Becomes Her, The Power of Women's Anger. And um, so why did you write that book? You worked in the corporate world. You were a senior vice president at the Gannett Corporation, which is a media organization. And then you also worked in data tech at uh, Caritas, which is a huge, pretty big company. Um, is that is that why you wrote the book? Did you see things that made you angry? <laughs> no, I didn't. <laughs> Um, I will say that those experiences were interesting. They were a long time ago. Um, I worked in media uh, and data technology through the 90s and early aughts um, and then started writing full time as a, a feminist writer and journalist about 10, 11 years ago. Um, I wrote the book because I'd been writing about all of these issues in politics and uh, religion and education and sports, really anything um, in the culture at large from a feminist perspective. And I wrote the book, uh, started writing it in 2017, just after the U.S. presidential election, because the election really crystallized for me the way women with power and authority were treated and why it mattered in the day-to-day -day lives of um, all women and society. Um, because it was really clear in that election that, A, people didn't fundamentally care what happened to women, because we had example after example after example of women as migrants and immigrants and black women who were dying in the maternal health system and women coming forward with stories of rape and harassment. And none of it seemed to matter. None of it seemed to register. And then we had a rising tide of populist anger globally that we could also see in the United States. And male candidates like Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump could leverage that populist anger. Because when a man expresses anger, it confirms our ideals of masculinity. When when a man expresses anger, we're more likely to trust him and to think of him as a leader and to um, change our opinions and adhere to his opinions. But when a woman expresses the exact same anger for the exact same reasons, that confronts our ideas about gender and norms and roles and who has the right to have and hold leadership. And so Hillary Clinton, for example, could not leverage that populist anger. And she had to stay very calm all the time and look very controlled all the time, whereas those men could slam their podiums and get red in the face and look like mad scientists, you know. Um, but those dynamics were just the dynamics that girls and women live with. And we know that from early childhood on. We penalize girls if they express anger. We castigate them if they raise their voices or they speak in certain ways or they use um, profanity. We discourage them in classrooms from telling jokes or being disruptive in ways that we encourage boys. And so, you know, no matter sort of what aspect of the culture you look at, anger becomes a useful filter through which to look at those gender norms and their effects on our lives. And ultimately, the thing about anger is that it's a human emotion. We all have it. And we all have it because it's a signal emotion. It keeps us safe. It warns us of threat. It's giving us information about the world. Um, and implicated in our anger is the idea that things should change and that our society should care. So my fundamental question is, why do we detach this human emotion 
from femininity? Why do we deny girls and women the right to make demands on the world when they want something to be changed or to express their needs? By the same token, when we do all of that, we deny boys and men the right to express sadness or to say that they're worried or sad or fearful. And that hurts boys and men deeply. Um, and it ultimately hurts society because no one is communicating well or healthily uh, in a way that makes sense for for a, a better, hu- more humane world. So you're basically saying that women and girls should be taught that being angry, getting angry is is good. It's a healthy thing. And that so this is part of what we were, you were saying. We should be teaching young children and we should be making sure that we tell boys it's OK to be sad. You're afraid. It's OK that you're afraid. So we need to be like reinforcing these. Well, yeah, I mean, I what I say in the book is that we should be teaching all children emotional competence. Right. We should be teaching them how to recognize and name their feelings and to understand the value of doing that in communicating their needs, in understanding other people's needs and feelings, and in being able to build healthy relationships, relationships that are um, respectful and are reciprocal. And so instead of punishing a girl for displaying anger or punishing a boy for expressing sadness or fear, we should be stopping and looking at them at eye level and asking them why, giving them the words to understand what they're trying to express. The other thing, too, is I'm not saying that we should tell people be angry in the sense that they should be raging or throwing things or breaking things, because that type of expression of anger is already dysfunctional. By the time someone gets to that point, they've already not recognized what is making them upset or frustrating them or scaring them or shaming them. And so we need to start much earlier in the process of having these feelings, naming these feelings, and then recognizing what these feelings are telling us, because they are a kind of information and knowledge. I'm glad you said that, because I think a lot of people, when they think of anger or rage, including myself, I, I think about when I get angry and oftentimes I get, I feel like slamming doors and I shout at people. I mean, a lot of people deal with their anger that way. So what's a healthy way of dealing with anger? How do you how when you say it's power, the powerful emotion, how do you make it powerful? Well, I mean, I think that, as I said, by the time you're slamming doors, um, probably a lot has gone into your anger that has been unacknowledged. Right. I mean, it's not. You know, some people go from zero to 100, but often it's the case that something else is fueling that. There's an underlying emotion or an accumulation of things. And so the idea is that if you can learn to recognize and name your own feelings, you can think about what you want, what you want from those feelings. And the main thing is to think, well, if I'm angry, why am I angry? What do I want to change? And who has to help me do that. The thing about anger is that while it's isolating um, and we learn that it will isolate us, it is in fact the most um, communal emotion because usually anger requires that the people around you do something, that you are in a relationship with people, whether those are people in your home, people at work, people in school, people in your society. And so I think the difficulty for women is that we learn always in virtually every society that we are a communal resource, that our primary role is to nurture and to put the needs of others first. 
So anger feels very difficult for us because, in fact, we are claiming what has been designated a male entitlement, an, an emotion that we shouldn't have and that we don't have the right to. And that when we express need or we express the desire for reciprocity in a relationship, that we're being unreasonable or selfish. And in fact, studies show that in heterosexual relationships, men feel that when a woman is angry, she is being selfish and that she wants to hurt him, which is really perverse if you think about it, right? Because what ends up happening is that in trying to express her needs or say, hey, this isn't working, we need to change this, she ends up being punished and punished in terms of the fact that the primary response to her is to police her way of expression, smile more, lower your voice, speak in a nice tone, um, don't look at me that way, instead of listening to the substance of her words. Hmm. Yeah, because you just said that maybe you shouldn't be slamming doors, but it's okay to raise your voice and it's okay. You, you know, you said when politicians are, male politicians are angry and they slam their fist on the table, no one says like, oh, what a jerk he's being. People are like, oh, he's really passionate about what he, you know, he's the way he really feels. really in charge. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> right. So it's okay to express right. your anger. You don't have to just like analyze your feelings and then like find a peaceful solution. Sometimes you have to... Um, vent the, the feelings in some way, shape, or form, as long as it's obviously not hurting anyone. Right. And the other thing, too, is there are, and I write about this a lot, there are really um, effective creative sublimations of anger that yield pro po positive results. So you join communities, you write, you become politically active, um, you take the energy and you decide what is it that I want to contribute to in the world? What will make my own situation better? And very often the thing that will make your situation better is finding like-minded people who respect you, understand what you want, um, are respectful of your dignity, will listen to you when you speak. We can't all assume that in our families, right? Like we know that that is not a baseline assumption and that the expectation of silence and conformity and um, attractiveness and Uh, self-objectification in the sense that you see yourself the way others see you before you see yourself the way you see yourself. Um, all of those are expectations made of girls and women. Um, and that is not conducive necessarily to our being healthy or happy or safe. Well, here comes in the, the group you suggested earlier on for that we need to create in the Middle East. And um, it, it's funny that you say that because that's what I did. I did a podcast. I do a podcast called The Men's Room. And the people I work yep. with are most of our, a lot of our shows are geared towards women. So unconsciously, I kind of did that, I guess. You did do that. And you're finding your people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we, yeah, we have a great team here and, and all the people that work with us um, then that have shows on the network in Arabic, which is great because they're, you know, talking to, um, to, to people in the Middle East, people that I can't talk to because I, my show's in English. But um, mm -hmm. so I just want to ask you this again uh, about the word feminism, because I have people, even yes. in my personal circle, who st especially men and other, some women also actually, feel they get like a negative connotation when you say you know that I'm a feminist or I agree with feminism what do you say to those people and I know you said there are different types and and you talked about radical feminism as not being women who feel like the whole patriarchal system should be changed but when I searched the definition today that was exactly the definition of of radical feminism it was women who want to disrupt society's patriarchal 
uh, power and kind of build their own uh, re reimagine the system. So that would be ra radical feminism from a purely semantic definition. So, but how do you defend it or explain it in a way that uh, kind of makes people think in a different way? Because people get defensive, right? If they have their people, I, I heard this the other day, people have ideas about things and it's like clothes or it's not like clothes. Some people have ideas and they're willing to change their clothes and their ideas but most people like they wear their ideas like skin like you could say anything and they would never change their mind so how, how do you deal with people like that who are like Ugh, feminists are so annoying so i think most people labor under misconceptions about feminism feminism is very simple um And at the same time, and this is why I said this is the difference in my mind between radical feminism with an uppercase R or a lowercase R. All feminism is radical. All feminism is advocating for changing the the way society functions and the social relationships within a society. And so from that perspective, any feminism really ultimately is constantly pushing boundaries and borders, constantly pushing. And that's always been the case. The way people perceive that, I think, is quite complicated because if an idea threatens your sense of self, if it threatens your identity, if it threatens your status, if it threatens your relationships, you will be hostile to that idea. You will deny it. You will denigrate it. Um, on the surface, feminism literally is defined as a movement for the equality of all peoples. And so when people reject the word feminism, I always say, well, do you agree with movements to fight for the equality of all peoples? And usually most people will say absolutely. And so there's a gap between their understanding of the meaning of the movements and the word itself. And so the question to me is, why don't you in yourself want to be associated with the word feminism? What is it about the word feminism that is conflicting to you? And I would argue that the word feminism is conflicting to people because it's threatening to them, ultimately. Yeah, but when I've had that conversation, their, their response is, yeah, of course I agree with equality. I just don't like the word. Why can't we call it humanism? Well, you know, humanism is a branch of thinking, of philosophy, right? Feminism speaks directly to the very specific historical an enduring problem of women's intersectional inequality. That's a totally different thing. Those are two entirely different things. Secondly, it's still the case that, and I would argue that women are not understood as fully human. We live in this liminal space where, where we are um, human insofar as we are variations of men. Virtually every standard by which we measure what is human is based on Um, men, men's bodies, men's experiences, men's ideas that have informed philosophy and theology and politics and culture. And so for me, the question is, how do we use feminism to get to the point where humanism is actually valid as a construct to understand women's experiences? Because it isn't right now. Hmm. That's, that's, a, that's a really good answer. Um, thank you for, for expressing it in such a, a powerful way. Um, but Soraya, when I was preparing for this interview, I thought about something that I think is really amazing. So the world is made up almost exactly of 50% men and 50% women, right? 
it's ac- it's actually 50.52% women to be precise. So there's yes, just a few more of us. Yeah. But mm-hmm. but it's pretty even. So that means that nature or god if you're religious is telling us that this is the perfect balance for things to function properly because that's how things happen naturally. Half the babies born are women and half are men. So if you work under the assumption that you know the the order of the natural world is the perfect arrangement then you could kind of take that and translate it and say well shouldn't that also function be the ideal way to function in all systems that humans create i just thought that was kind of of a, an interesting way of looking at it when you think about you know building a company uh running a business running a, a country or a town If if you're gonna learn from animals, which we already do, we've learned how to fly from birds and insects. Um, I just read an article that that we're looking at how to make humans hibernate like animals do, so that they can travel further into space without suffering all the negative effects of, of being in space. So, so I don't know. What do you, what are your thoughts on this? Am I crazy? <laughs> no, I mean. Uh, I sometimes I um, struggle to take arguments from nature uh, because no matter what we're human beings and we're going to, ex- you know, we're going to impose our, our constructions on, on that. Um, there's a lot in nature that's good. There's a lot in nature that's bad, right? A lot of people would use the same thing you just said um, to argue for male dominance because they'll find animals in which uh, male animals uh viciously dominate, right? Uh, so so I personally am slow to necessarily embrace that because I always go back to what human constructions are we imposing on these ideas. I do, however, believe that um, the type of governance we have now, overwhelmingly male, overwhelmingly based on systems of exploitation and extraction and war and violence, are killing the planet. Right. And so we need to rectify that. And um, part of the process of rectifying it is not just thinking, how can we achieve the kind of balance you described? But I think even more fundamentally, how do we dismantle the binary systems of thinking that contribute to the problems we have today? Right. Because the male female binary goes hand in hand with lots of other binaries, um, black, white, uh, rational, irrational, like you can just go down a long line of binaries and, and the way we generally think, um, that dichotomization, um, I, I would argue from an epistemological perspective also needs to be questioned. Yeah. So, Definitely, that makes sense. You know, we're we're intelligent human beings, and as you said, we can learn from nature. But we also have to look at the reality and and see what you know how, what needs to be fixed. So, but you make a good point, and I think people forget this, and it's simple but true. If you look at all the wars, um, you know, most of, of of the problems in the world right now have been created by men. So, would women have created the same problems? I don't know. But they don't have the, 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 I mean, the evidence is not there to say that they would have. So perhaps there is something to bringing women into these decision, uh, this decision making to help solve these problems. But I'm going to wager that 50% of animals or animal kinds 
are dominated by men and the other 50% dominated by females. <laughs> <laughs> Just because that's how much I, I think nature got it right. But I'm probably, right. yeah. Um, we can argue with science, you know, that's what Gad Saad said. But, you know, it's, everything is about perception. <laughs> I'll argue right? with science. <laughs> yeah, well, you argue with science, but you present your own science. That's right. Yeah. That's why I think it's you eminently can. arguable. Yeah, exactly. Everything I, is arguable. Yeah. That's right. It, it's all about perspective and which data you choose <laughs> to look at. Um, I will throw this at you because there's this really great book um, by Angela. I don't know if you know Angela Sanini. Uh, hold on. I'll find that book for you. Um, there are two books recently um, that I think are, are really great from the perspective that we were just everything we've talked about. And one is Inferior. Um, the name of the book is Inferior, How Science Got Women Wrong. And the author's last name is Angela, uh, her, her name is Angela Saini, S-A-I-N-I. Um, her other book is called Superior, which is about race and, and science. So Inferior and Superior. Yes. That's easy. And then another book, yes. another must read is, of course, Rage Becomes Her. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> what else are you working on? Do you have anything coming up? Um, I am working on a book right now, and it's about care economies and society and how human beings think about trauma. Oh. It's all related to the issues that we've just discussed. Soraya, thank you so much for doing this. It's been such a pleasure listening to you and uh, gaining all, all your wisdom and sharing it. Uh, well, it was delightful to talk to you, Nadia. Thank you so much. Best of luck with all your projects. You too. That's all for now. If you like what you just heard or you hated some of it, but you enjoy that feeling and want to listen to more episodes, be sure to subscribe to the podcast. Lots of love and Merry Christmas. <laughs>